you are new to us this morning, first of all, we say welcome, glad to have you. If you haven't been here, though, in the last three weeks, we are in a sermon series entitled Transform. Now, we're looking at the transgender issues, particularly on a, a personal level. In the first message, we kind of set the table. It's a sermon series about people, nuance, concepts, and kindness. Next Sunday, I'm back and clean up a little bit, trying to address the many issues that uh, still remain to be addressed. So we'll talk a little bit about pronouns and bathrooms. I want to talk some next Sunday about the, the striking rise and late rapid onset gender dysphoria for teenage girls and what seems to be contributing to that. Talk a little bit about suicidality. And again, the posture of the church. And most of the sermon series so far has been about what should be the posture of the church for folks who are struggling with these issues. But today, we want to deal with the central question. It is the $64,000 question. We kind of posted it in the very first message, or it could be the one Bitcoin question these days, or one and a half. But it is this question right here. If someone experiences incongruence between their biological sex and their gender, which one determines who they are and why? Which determines who they are and why? I want to see, what does the Bible say about that? Although the Bible does not ask and answer that question directly, uh, we're going to address it in principle and look at two sides of this question. And I want to tell you, we're going to go fast. We're going to cover, it's going to be drinking through a fire hose type of Sunday. We're going to look at a lot of scriptures. I don't necessarily expect everyone to remember them. I don't remember them. I've got eight pages of notes right here to help me make the presentation. But we want to leave an impression. We want to leave an impression on what the Bible says. If you did want to get into the weeds for some reason, just use any of those cards the, on your, in front of your chair there and request a manuscript. I'd be happy to email you the manuscript. All right, two headings. Heading number one, what does the Bible say about our biological sex and ontology? Ontology is the study of being, what makes us who we are, being. Seven things. Look at seven biblical principles right here. Number one is this. The body is essential to our image-bearing status. Genesis 1.27. God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created them, male and female, he created them. So right off the bat here in the very first chapter of the Bible is probably the most fundamental and foundational statement about our identity and ontology, our sense of being. That is, we are image bearers of God. We are created with bodies, and those are sexed bodies, meaning male and female. The word that is used here for image, the Hebrew word, Everywhere else it's translated in the Old Testament, it's translated idol. Idol, image, idol. Think of what an, an idol is. It is a visible image of an invisible deity. And what the Bible seems to be communicating here is we are to be on earth the visible images and representatives of our God. We are his image bearers. Mark Cortez, theologian, writes, the image of God is a declaration that God intended to create human persons to be the physical means through which he would manifest his own divine presence in the world. And we're not just bodies. In Genesis chapter 2, the Bible says that God breathed into Adam's nostrils in the breath of life, and he became a living being. We know we're spirit and body, but we cannot dismiss the body at all. It is fundamental to our personhood. Principle number two, Adam and Eve's bodies are viewed as sacred. Genesis chapter 2, verse 21. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs 
and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. I don't know if this is literally rib or not, a rib. It's debated. Elsewhere, where that word translated here, rib, is used, it is always used of a sacred piece of architecture, the side, for instance, of an altar, uh, the side piece of a tabernacle, the side piece of a temple, uh, a sacred structure. So at least part of what's being communicated here is sanctity and sacredness. So Adam's body and Eve's body are viewed as sacred. Third principle, Jesus views Genesis chapters 1 and 2 as normative. Now this was written thousands, or it was written 1,500 years before Jesus, Genesis 1 and 2, the events of creation, probably thousands of years before Jesus. And yet he says in Matthew 19, 4, haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So when Jesus considered this still to be normative for his day and applicable to the moral order. Principle number four, the apostle Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, sees the body as significant for moral behavior. And he correlates the body with personhood, personhood. First Corinthians chapter six, verse 19. This is Paul, where he says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Now you see that's bold and red because right there he's interchanging, using interchangeably you, the person with your body who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own body to prize. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Paul here is probably teaching against a very stark dualism in the Corinthian church where the Corinthians, because of their Greek Platonic beliefs, thought that what they did with their bodies did not necessarily impact their soul. So they could solicit a prostitute, for instance, with their body, but that did not morally corrupt their spirit or their soul. And Paul writes against this, said, no, body, soul, intertwined, person and body interchangeable. He does this elsewhere. Romans 6.13, for instance, in the Roman letter, Romans 6.13, offer yourselves to God. Romans 12.1, offer your bodies to him. We are not simply souls with bodies. We are embodied souls. Very close correlation. Principle number five. Scripture prohibits cross-sex behavior. Deuteronomy 22.5, a woman must not wear men's clothing. For the Lord your God detests anyone who does this. Now, this is an Old Testament prohibition. And we know anytime you're looking at an Old Testament prohibition, you have to ask the question, is it still applicable today under the New Covenant? Is this part of the ceremonial law that passed away? Or is this part of the moral order that continues today? We're not Old Testament Jews living under the Old Covenant. We're New Testament Christians under the New Covenant. But I believe, if I understand what the Bible is teaching, this is part of the moral order that still exists today, even for New Covenant Christians, partly because it is reinforced in the New Testament in other places and in other ways. For instance, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, Paul writes, Do not be fooled. A person who does sex sins or who worships false gods or is not faithful in marriage or men who act like women or people who do sex sins with their own sex will have no place in the holy nation of God. Now, this verse includes the Greek word M-A-L-A-K, malak, which literally means soft and effeminate. It's in the list of those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
Most scholars recognize that term primarily describes men who act like or identify as women. And by act like, we're not talking about the inability to throw a football. One of the most common ways that Malakoi would act like women was by engaging in same-sex sexual activity with men. So this is the sexual role that is probably being referred to by Paul in this passage. In addition, now we're still talking about Scripture prohibits cross-sex behavior. You've got 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16. That's a long passage. I'm not going to read that. I'm just going to refer to it today. It has interpretive difficulties from head coverings to prophecies to strict dress codes for men and women. There's a lot of debate. But almost all interpreters agree on these two things. Number one, Paul maintains sex differences as something that should be upheld and celebrated in public worship. And number two, he appeals to creation to do so. He goes back to the original creation account. Seven principles. Here's number six. The incarnation of Christ affirms the goodness of our sexed embodiment. Now we're in the image of God, but Jesus is the image of God. Colossians 1.15. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. So as you know, if we want to know what, Christ, what God is like, we look to Christ. If we want to know what we should be becoming like in our discipleship, we look to Christ. The Greek word here for image is icon, E-I-K-O-N. It means physicality and embodiment. Colossians 2.9 reads, For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. So Jesus' embodiment as a male challenges the notion that biology is irrelevant to our identity. And then seven, finally, seven, seven principles. Sex difference probably remains after the resurrection. What we will be then has moral implications for how we are to live now. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians six fourteen. He says, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead. And he will raise you also. Okay? After referencing the resurrection, he makes a moral application. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. The idea is, since Christ has resurrected and we're going to be resurrected, that dictates that we should live in a certain way now. Theologian Oliver O'Donovan writes, Christian ethics depend upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But will our resurrected bodies be male and female? If I understand what the Bible teaches, I believe so. Now, here's three things. Number one, sexual differences were in place before the fall in the Garden of Eden. Number two, sex difference is central to our personhood, and it's integral to how we image God. And in the absence of specific scriptural teaching that our bodies in the resurrection will not be sexed, it's reasonable to assume that they will. And number three, Jesus' resurrection is the model for our own. 1 John 3, 2. When Christ appears, we shall be like him. Romans 8, 11, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. So there's a continuity, as we've talked about before, between the bodies we have now and the resurrection bodies that we will have then. Ross Hastings writes in his book, The Trinity and Human Sexuality, quote, We are made in God's image as persons, who are not completely defined by their sex, but who cannot be defined apart from their embodied sex. So two headings, 
Here's the conclusion for this first one based on these seven principles. Scripturally, biological sex is absolutely significant. It's a significant aspect of our ontology, our human identity. The second heading, we're only doing two today. The second heading, what about our internal sense of self and ontology? What does the Bible have to say about that? Our internal sense of self. Much harder to find scriptural data on this. I want to approach it in two ways. Could someone's soul or spirit be sexed differently from their body? In other words, could you have a female soul and a male body? Some theologians have postulated that you could and that that's where some of the dysphoria comes from. They base this in part on the intermediate state. Now, you know what the intermediate state is? Some of you do. When you die, your body stays here, spirit goes to present heaven. That's the intermediate state. Present heaven is an intermediate state. We're not going to live forever as disembodied spirits in heaven. When Jesus returns, he brings spirit, our spirits with him, and the bodies are resurrected, recreated, and spirits are reintroduced back into the body, and then those resurrected bodies live forever on the new earth. But since there is an intermediate state, some theologians have, have wondered, could a person's soul or spirit be sexed differently from their body? There's a lot of challenges to that idea. And uh, the first one is that a spirit could be sexed at all because male and female are aspects of a biological, physical body. So is that even possible? Number two, even if our souls could be sexed differently from our bodies, how would you know? How would someone determine that? No, is it, would it be because a man likes pink instead of blue and binge watches Downton Abbey? Is that an indication well, you see, you cannot hardly describe that idea without going back or reverting to gender stereotypes. We talked about gender roles and stereotypes last week. Gender stereotypes do not determine someone's maleness or femaleness. So how would you even know? And even if you could know, that doesn't mean that the internal sense of self or that, that uh, the sex soul overruled the sex of the body. So Several challenges with that idea. The other way I want to think about this is this question. Could someone have a male brain in a female body? Could it be a brain thing or vice versa? I went online and took a 30-question test on brainfall.com. If you want to have some fun, go to brainfall.com. And you can, take this quest, uh, uh, you can take this test to determine whether you have a male brain or a female brain. So 30 multiple choice questions like this. Let me give you some examples. What was the last thing that made you cry? Right. A, death, B, weight gain, C, cute animal videos, or D, I don't cry. I cry at movies, so I put cute animal videos on that one. Number two, which of the following snacks appeals the most? A, ice cream, B, cake, C, hot dogs, D, anything fried. I got a sweet tooth, I put the cake on that. Number three, what is your criteria when shopping for jeans? A, they look normal. B, how my butt looks. C, uh, get, over, get it over with quickly. Or D, how they look with my shoes. That one's a no-brainer, right? It's get it over with quickly. So questions like that. At the end of which, the test results were that my brain is 60% male and 40% female. All kidding aside, 
do brains come in male and female brands? Sonny and Cher's uh, son, Chaz, maintains that he was born with a female body, but he's had a male brain. That's what he thinks. There is a whole category of brain sex theory and studies, medical studies on that. What are the study results? They are mixed. <laughs> Unfortunately, they're mixed. In his 2020 book, Transgender Identities of the Church and What the Bible Has to Say, the author writes as follows. Based on as many significant studies as I can find, it does not appear that the male brain in a female body or vice versa theory has clear scientific evidence to support it. The science is still fairly young. Further research will confirm or correct our beliefs. No doubt some people's gender dysphoria does have biological roots. It might also have some environmental causes. Nature and nurture often so enmeshed that it's tough to pull them apart. For those with early onset, lifelong gender dysphoria, those who have experienced intense dysphoria from the time they were three or four years old, there's probably a strong biological influence involved with their dysphoria. But saying biology plays a role is different from saying that a person's brain is actually sexed independent from their body. So there, there's the brain sex theory. So back to our original question that we started with. If someone experiences incongruence between their biological sex and their internal sense of self, especially gender, which one determines who they are and why? After refracting our question through the lens of the Bible, the sex-soul theory, the brain-sex theory, in my opinion, my humble opinion, the Bible and science offer much more evidence to support the view that our biological sex determines who we are. Our sex bodies determine whether we are male or female, and our embodiment is an essential part of how we image God in the world. I don't think the Bible or science offers enough evidence to suggest that our gender identity overrules our sex identity, even if we experience incongruence. Now, let me give you an analogy here. Uh, some of you have had pilot training, and you know the difference between VF qualified to fly and IF qualified. Uh, if you do, what would VF quali qualification be? Yes, visual flight, visual flight qualified. What is IF? Instrumental flight qualified. So if you're visual flight qualified, you can fly in the daytime. You can't fly through clouds. You can't fly in bad weather. You have to be able to look out your window to see where you're going, see if there's any other planes out there. If you're instrumental flight qualified, you fly by uh, IFR, instrumental flight rules. So you can fly at night. You can fly through clouds. You can fly in bad weather because you're looking at the instrument panel. And... Those who are IF qualified, instrumental flight qualified, are trained to trust the instruments and not their feelings, not their sense of what is happening. I was talking to Darren Mengear, who used to fly these Apache attack helicopters in the early service. You could have a sense, when you can't see what's going on outside the plane, you could have the sense that you're in a spiral, a death spiral, that you're flying on a vertical path. You're about to hit the ground at any minute. That's what your senses are screaming at you. But you look at the instrument panel, and it says, no, you're on a horizontal flight path, plenty of airspace, you're going to be fine. You have to disregard this and these. You have to trust the instrument panel. Now, some of you see where I'm going on this, <laughs> right? We, we live by BFR, biblical flight rules. When we are Christians, God says, we need to trust, this is our instrument panel, we need to trust this. 
We can't always trust this. The heart is deceptive, the Bible says. We can't always trust these. We walk by faith and not by sight. When there's incongruence, when there's dysphoria, when there's confusion, when we're not sure, who am I? We go back to this and we trust the Word of God. Sometimes that involves denying ourselves. But Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. However, we should never downplay the significance of a person's experiences or their internal sense of who they are. Because we can get the Bible right. But if we get love wrong, we're still wrong. And that comes back to our posture as Christians and as a church. And I said at the beginning, we, we want, this is the sermon series about kindness. And I want to end with the story of Walt Heyer. Uh, his, he's got his story online at his website and three YouTube videos about his experience there. But he writes, early in my journey, back when I identified as Laura Jensen, transgender female, many Christians looked at me as irredeemable and even repugnant. This was evident the Sunday I walked into a Southern California church for morning service, all decked out in my flashy red pumps, blonde hair, and red dress. Later that day, the pastor came to my home and he told me, we don't want your kind in our church. So I didn't go to church for another eight years. Eventually, I decided to try church again, this time in the San Francisco Bay Area. A friend suggested I talk with the pastor at his office about whether I would be accepted at the church. My impression of Pastor Jeff Ferrar was that he was a big guy with an even bigger heart. I could tell that he was looking at me through the eyes of Jesus, not man's scornful eyes of judgment. He saw me for what I was, a transgender female who needed both God's love and redemption. Pastor Jeff knew that welcoming me as Laura required a leap of faith for him as a pastor and that it would take the congregation into uncharted waters. But he was willing to walk, walk alongside me to see what God would do. He purposefully sought to know my heart. Pastor Jeff wisely allowed God to work in me and in the church, resisting the temptation to tell God what to do. Over time, thanks to a loving church, family, and Christian counseling, I regained the reality of who I was, the man God made me to be, and turned away from my surgical and emotional identity of Laura. He concludes, the church is a hospital for broken people. People who have gender dysphoria are broken, just like everybody else. They're not unique in their brokenness. They're only unique in how they wear their brokenness. The next time you encounter someone struggling with their identity, consider trying out a pair of God's glasses. Strive to see those around you as our Creator does. You never know what God will do. Would you bow with me in prayer? Our Father in heaven, as we are learning throughout this series and really know intuitively, we all struggle with different kinds of dysphoria where what we experience does not match up to the ideal or what we would like it to be. We pray, God, that we will always go back to your scriptures as our anchor and our guide for what is true and always reflect the love of Christ at the same time for people who are broken just like us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.